Thank you. Well, good morning, and uh, apologies to those of you who've seen me before, but, but I want to talk about, uh, with a little help from the, there we go. What do you do when you're trying to do genuinely disruptive, lean innovation inside a big old company? I think we just heard about how they're really trying to kick the tires at Nordstrom. We heard about the New York Times, the great gray lady. Um, and no matter how good their digital product is, being a crossword puzzle junkie, I will do that puzzle on paper with a pen every day. The advantage of the pen is you can give up when it's such a mess that you can't deal with it. But I think that the thing we all sort of love to forget is how hard your job is and the challenges there are in sort of breaking through the old way, the way we do it here, and so forth. The rewards, obviously, are this stuff works, right? It works better, if you will, in startups because startups have unlimited risk tolerance and very few rules, and they are betting the farm on this particular you know, innovation, their new product, or whatever, and they fundamentally have nothing to lose. Okay, so I gotta live in my parents' basement for another six months, what the heck? Many of you have a W-2 and a career path and a resume to lose, uh, which are pretty good risks, and the people who employ you threaten you with that sort of gray cloud because they have uh, revenue streams, they have shareholders, they have reputations, they have people who would you know, love to come after them. And so balancing the sort of stresses of managing a big corporation for the long term against the higher level of risk and challenge that we take in uh, doing this in a, you know, in a big corporation, um, you know, is, is something that most of you, I'm sure, deal with almost every day. Um, on the other hand, it works. There are lots of companies, many of them in this room today, who have applied these principles, fought those battles, and really started to win by uh, um, you know, doing disruptive innovation. And I would guess that at least half the time uh, you're successful. But I don't want to talk about lean principles today. You've had a day and a half of it, and you'll have another half day of it at all. But what are the obstacles you deal with? A very good friend of mine, Nick, we're talking shop every once in a while, and he says, oh, I get it. You travel around the world, and you are the official Grinch. You talk about how hard this is and where you're going to get your head kicked in and where you're going to have setbacks and so forth. But what are the sort of uh, obstacles and challenges that you uh, face, and, um, and how do you deal with them sort of uh, in a large company environment? very, very different, as I've said, sort of, from the, uh, uh, the software world. So I've spent basically my whole adult life, uh, my last W-2 arrived in, uh, no, I'm sorry, September of 1972, before quite a few of you were even uh, on the planet, and I've done a whole lot of investing and coaching of both startups and uh, large companies, and for, out of respect for those of you who were here uh, Yesterday, we'll sort of skip through the Bob Dorf uh, bio slides. But big 
companies are based on write a plan, execute the plan. And those who vary from the plan very often vary from the company and, uh, you know, sort of face uh, challenges, shall we say, career challenges very often. Big companies have rules and they have lawyers and they have procedures and HR policies and so forth because they have brands and reputations and assets to protect. Um, big companies uh, look for big businesses. I can't tell you how many large corporations I've talked to where the first question is, well, how big is this thing ever going to be? Forgetting, of course, that Google was a small business one, you know, one day, as was Amazon and everything else. And very often, the competitor to what all of us are doing, trying to drive disruption in a big corporation, is not just the obstacles, it's the M&A department. Well, let's let those kids in the garage tinker with this for a while, and if it starts to get some traction and it fits in our product mix or our sales channel or whatever, when it gets big and strong enough and starts to give us enough spreadsheets where we can analyze it, we'll just buy it and we'll save all that stress and we won't have to have those frumpy kids in jeans and t-shirts wandering around the office with the suits and ties uh, and so forth. I was working recently with a uh, software company acquired by a big 100-year-old insurance company and the biggest challenges were around the chemistry between the two teams and when the New York-based tech team flew to the Midwest to headquarters. It was uh, almost like an alien invasion, and it showed in the conversations in the meetings and the receptivity to their ideas, and it was very frustrating to the, um, to the acquired, you know, younger, hipper, more uh, fluid and uh, courageous innovators uh, and caused a lot of them, frankly, to... Uh, wind up leaving the company that uh, was bought in large measure for its talent and experience in the first place. Um, so, um, you know, you're dealing with the fact that a big company wants a big business and they want it instantly or they want it on a time schedule. And if you are a true believer in lean startup principles, they don't operate on a schedule, no matter how many scrums you have, no matter how many team meetings or how close they are together. This takes work and it takes repeated bites at the apple and it takes the honesty and candor to say, we don't have the answer yet. We need to go talk to 20 or 30 customers or test a different approach to solving this problem for our customers. And that's very hard to do in a big company that's used to, you know, Gantt charts and calendars and action schedules and report dates and so forth. And then you have this. I mean, fundamentally, every one of us is starting with a business model canvas that looks just like this. Now, of course, uh, when I teach this at uh, Columbia Business School, we call them hypotheses because if you're spending a quarter of a million dollars to get an MBA, you need to learn some big words uh, along the way. But imagine showing this to an executive VP in a major corporation. And you know, these are our hypotheses or guesses about what's going to happen with this innovation exercise, right? So sort of having grown up on the marketing side of the world, how many product managers, marketing types do we have in the room? 
right? Well, at least the people who've raised their hands are intimately familiar with the four Ps, right? Product, price, place, promotion. Uh, sometimes product, price, place, or positioning and promotion. They are sort of central to the product manager training from the first day they arrive at any business school in the land. And I thought I would try to take a look at what are the four Ps of corporate innovation. And they are the process is an enemy, the people can be an enemy, the company's priorities can be an enemy, and you know, paranoia, right? How's this gonna play in the boardroom? How's this gonna play with the shareholders? So let's talk quickly about each of these and give you some thoughts about how you deal with them in your own environment. Many of them, I suspect, uh, you've experienced in one, you know, one level or another already. So process. One software company we work with has an ironclad rule that no code leaves the building without at least three, if not six weeks of Q&A. How are you gonna do fastly iterating cycles of showing your MVP to customers if every time you crank a new version or a new alternative, you've gotta pause for three to six weeks and get uh, code approval, right? My other favorite is, uh, particularly in the healthcare, obviously in the healthcare space, can't talk to customers, it's a HIPAA violation. And we've been, one case in a, uh, uh, lean uh, development exercise, we actually solved that by saying, well, how about, we can, we got two choices here. If we can't talk to customers, we can either tear up your contract, thank you very much for your time, uh, leave a couple boxes of books in your lobby and go home, or we can just note that we are talking to a left-handed 30-year-old man in a blue shirt with a beard. And as long as, and that was actually the solution. As long as you're not identifying the customers, you're circumventing, you know, five pounds of regulations in a typical uh, uh, healthcare company, right? And so you're dealing again with the process of we have a plan and we execute the plan. You guys are talking about going on a search. I used to describe this as I'm going to drop you by helicopter in the middle of a jungle and tell you that there's a bag of gold hiding out there somewhere. Here's a map, here's a wheelbarrow in case you find the gold, and good luck. That search doesn't operate on a time schedule. Obviously, it requires interacting with a lot of customers, occasionally some wild uh, jungle animals, things like that. But when you are in a lean, an honest lean innovation cycle, it doesn't fit on a roadmap. It doesn't fit on a calendar. And if you force it into that calendar, you're doing a great service, great disservice to your company in that you are sort of preempting the chance of finding that gold. You're trying to hit the deliverable of the June 1st management meeting or the August 10th report out on the next steps, and you're not giving yourself permission to sort of subvert the process that is much more typical on the sort of established side of the company where much of the innovation experience um, is about iterating on existing products as opposed to truly doing 
uh, more disruptive innovation. I remember a meeting not long ago in Moscow with the innovation team at one of the largest banks in Russia. What is the innovation team working on? Online banking. Gee, uh, isn't that you know 20 years old already? And is that you know where is the disruptive in that innovation? And basically, it was a web development team given a sexier name so it would look better, uh, you know, in the in the annual report to uh, uh, President Putin. So how do you publish a strict, tight calendar? when you know you're going to violate it in, in the true uh, search for the gold. Um, the, other, the next obstacle in sort of the process department is, well, we outsource that sort of stuff. We hire consultants, we hire McKinsey, we do whatever, uh, but we don't really do it ourselves. And that's a battle you're going to fight sort of continuously about the importance of bringing this into the company, making it central to the company's skill set, attracting the people, and giving them the latitude to really operate in an honest sort of uh, non-process uh, or non-scheduled process way. Um, and uh, the other challenge you have in the process department is, oh, talking to customers. That belongs in the market research department. Call them in. Everything you know revolves around uh, proposals and quotes, and extends the amount of time, uh, you know, sort of uh, immensely. So, what are some of the solutions? Um, first, you've got to change the process. You've got to get permission to do this the right way. Uh, second, you have to find metaphors in your industry or in related industries where you can show how others have succeeded in this bolder, sort of less structured path uh, to success. Um, third, look for business opportunities sort of within your existing business. Um, and what does that one say? And find, uh, and do your very best to insulate your team from all the rules and processes and procedures. Uh, the way we think about it is in the best world, you move the lean teams out of headquarters, uh, away from all the regulators, and give them uh, a senior executive to sort of insulate them and sort of run interference uh, along the way. Um, and celebrate the failures when you're learning from them and using them to move forward uh, as much as you celebrate the successes. Number two, people, right? Um, at a full-day seminar at a major software company, when we got to the Q&A, most of the questions were about, do I have to give up my window cubicle to go do this? What happens if we do join this innovation team and the innovation doesn't work? How do you create rewards for people who are building, um, you know, lean programs and finding out that it's not a good investment of the company's time and talent to uh, uh, go on and uh, go forward uh, with this product. My other favorite is how do you recruit these people, right? Many people work in big corporations because they like the security of a W-2 and a health insurance program and benefits and a 
nice air-conditioned office to go to, and so forth. And with one of our clients, we were involved in recruiting some of the first members of the customer development teams. And I'll never forget this gentleman interviewing for a job at a big corporation. He said, oh, I get it. Work like a startup around the clock endlessly uh, with sort of uh, startup hours and corporate you know, benefits, no options, no sort of upside for me, and so forth. And how do you create those upsides for those people? Uh, in uh, one, one set of internal teams I worked with, we actually you know, created sort of gold stars and honored the people who were on the team in company uh, communications and things like that, pointing out the, the, the brevity, the bravery of the team members and celebrating their courage to go and help the company grow, right? Get uh, the best team leaders you can and look for options, look for ways to create other kinds of rewards. A manufacturing engineer in Memphis, Tennessee, was suddenly, by joining one of these teams and working really hard in it uh, and doing some, some really bold, interesting work, wound up presenting to the CEO of the company who barely knew that he existed, presenting to her five, six, seven times and showing off his courage, his ability to think beyond the manufacturing process and so forth. And so one of the big payoffs typically is in uh, career capital. Another can be flex time and another can be what happens to you sort of next uh, along the way. Um, factor three, priorities, right? Um, when these teams aren't truly isolated from the daily goings on of the business, we had a uh, client who had a team drawn from a Yellow Pages sales organization in Latin America. You can imagine how tough it is to be selling uh, Yellow Pages advertising ever since the emergence uh, of Google. And all of a sudden, they went totally radio silent for almost two weeks. We couldn't get them to answer emails. They were in a different city. We couldn't get them to return phone calls because the division CEO said, everybody drop everything. We have to make the number for the month, which was an impossible sort of uh, uh, challenge. And so they were absolutely told, you know, just leave, let the innovation program you know, lie fallow and we'll catch up with it sort of when we can. Um, so next is sort of what are the priorities of the company generally set by the CEO? If not the CEO, the division head, or somebody with enough clout to make sure that everybody in the organization knows that customer discovery and getting out of the way so that this sort of disruptive innovation process can actually happen, uh, ignores the quarterly numbers and is separate from it and is looking at the quarterly numbers for two or three years from now once this innovation sort of uh, starts to take hold. And very often one of the challenges you'll face, as I'm sure many of you have seen, is that how big is this thing going to get really? Will it pass the Viagra test? Is it going to get really big? And is it going to last for more than four hours? And, and lots of, you know, S&P 500 companies can't afford to think 
small, and so they dismiss what you're doing because it's going to take too damn long, and it's much easier to write a half a million or a million dollar check to McKinsey or somebody else and say, oh, yeah, we're working on innovation. It's over there in that outsourced sort of uh, area. Um, so you need leadership buy-in buy or you're dead, right? You need to segregate or isolate somehow your innovation team so they have the room uh, to maneuver. You've got to protect them with, I don't know how many of you are old enough to remember the Gardol shield that I think came with uh, the early days of Colgate toothpaste. In insulate them from the rule books and the procedures and the sort of you know, militaristic march from step one to step two to step three, because disruptive innovation doesn't happen on a calendar, and you need somebody with the clout to hold up that guard all shield and argue with the HR people or the head of market research or whatever about why you need to build this alone. Because the companies that are truly successful at doing disruptive lean innovation have achieved some great things, but they operate differently hiding within sort of the company itself. So the last factor, paranoia. It's a part of what drives every senior executive in every major corporation. And I've more than once run across, oh, we can't show anybody an MVP. It would be too embarrassing for us. Well, if you're going to build every product before you get customer feedback for it, you might as well throw away Eric's book, throw away our book, and just you know go to church a lot because you have nothing guiding your launch uh, along the way. So the way to think about this is you are not measuring your approach to revenue. You are measuring the speed at which you are converting those guesses or hypotheses into facts by getting feedback from customers, the only people who matter. And if you think about your business model, Canvas, uh, for a couple of clients, we've actually put a little dot in the bottom right-hand corner of each box. And that dot is red when you have no idea whether your hypothesis is true or not. It's green when you think you're about halfway there. And I'm sorry, it's yellow when you're about halfway there. And once you have really affirmed that this is a valid fact that you can use to march forward in your plan, it's green. And when you start to see a bunch of green dots, you start to celebrate some real progress. Second, this is about being honest with your sponsoring executive, not making him or her feel good. Very often that sponsoring executive is as nervous as you are about the progress because he or she is on the hook to their boss for the outcome of this uh, lean, you know, innovation exercise. And so being, you know, better 10 days before the big uh, output meeting to uh, say, look, I don't think we're ready for this meeting. I don't think we've accomplished enough. We've got to go back and do some more, you know, work on this, that, or the other thing. Um, even though it violates the written work plan because customers didn't read the work plan and they don't have to do what it says. And what you're looking for here is outliers of rampant enthusiasm for what you're doing, not trying to move a 
average customer approval score from a 3.3 to a 3.6 and calling it uh, sort of a victory. The other thing I think which sort of sums it up uh, in the words of Nike and Phil Knight is you've just got to do it. You've got to take on each of these issues as early as you can in the development of your lean team and fight the good fight to really do this the way you know it needs to be done. Thoroughly driven by feedback, driven by the processing of that feedback that says, wow, this really makes a difference, and pushing forward to uh, build a great new disruptive innovation. So thank you.